12. Remember, go to find Matthew, go left two books. Was it Malachi and then Zechariah? Scripture says, the oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves and all of the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood like a flaming torch among sheaves. And they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. On that day the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David, and the house of David shall be like God like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be, as the, will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the family of the house of David by itself, and their wives by themselves, and the family of the house of Nathan by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the house of Levi, Levi by itself, and their wives by themselves, the family of the Shimeites by itself, and the, their wives by themselves, and all the families that are left each by itself, and their wives by themselves. Father, we ask for the Spirit's illumination to give clarity, but also to prompt faith in us to see Jesus as great. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may have used the term, the crux of the matter, seen it written, heard it said. As with many idioms, we don't really understand why we say what we say and what perhaps is 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 in, entailed in what we're saying, but the word crux is Latin for cross. When we talk about the crux of a matter, we're referring to the point at which everything comes together. It's the most important part. This chapter of the book of Zechariah is the crux of this book. It's where everything comes together to point to the Messiah. We've looked at how the visions of Zechariah have pointed to the coming Messiah who would establish a new temple in the hearts of God's people. He'd be of royal and priestly lineage. We've seen the judgment placed on worthless and foolish shepherds who have not properly pointed to God and how he'll send an ultimate shepherd 
for his people. All along, the message to look for the Messiah was to have an uplifting and encouraging effect on the disillusioned and discouraged people of Jerusalem who were struggling thinking that God may have given up on his promises to them. In this chapter, God revealed through Zechariah the crux of all of his promises and of all of human history. He pointed to the cross that the Messiah would be on. On our side of this glorious and momentous and cosmic event, we see how it comes together better than the original readers, but this was some serious stuff for Jerusalem in Zechariah's day. They had the same awe that we have, but their awe was unanswered. They didn't know what completed the awe. They're just looking ahead in wonder. We look back in history in wonder and in awe. They were to trust the Messiah would come to complete the promises God made. And his promises would be fulfilled on a crux, cross. And the effect of looking at this passage today, this chapter, is for Jesus to be more powerful and more glorious to us as we see his promised suffering to save God's people, ultimately to save us. And my prayer has been this week that we would be in awe and wonder at the grace of God given to us in our own salvation, in the salvation that he provides us in order that it would capture our hearts for greater worship and greater obedience. Look, when we see Jesus, our lives come together. There's a big cultural mantra these days about centering ourselves. I just need to center myself. I need to be present and center myself. You know how Christians do that? We look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, everything centers. Uh, we, we get rid of all of the, uh, the frustrating, uh, meandering idols that we're going after, and we trust Jesus more. And our hearts worship, and we obey him. Jesus is worthy of being the crux, not just of this book, but the crux of our lives. And that I pray is, is where, it's where everything comes together for us. Now that first uh, big section, verses 1 through 9, I think we see Jerusalem on offense. There, there's some activity happening. And where we've seen Jerusalem be the recipient a lot of, of uh, attack and pillaging and destruction, God's promising that Jerusalem would be changed and it would be doing the judging. It wouldn't be judged, it would judge, it wouldn't be attacked, it would do the attacking. But I think it points to something very particular about how God wants to bring that about. Jerusalem had been the, the symbol of strength to God's people since it, it was established by King David. It grew in strength and wealth up through King Hezekiah that expanded its borders and walls. But the idolatry of the wicked kings began to bring the city backwards in glory. The city had become weak to the point of being picked on, then decimated by enemy armies. God promised to use Israel to be all of those things to others that had done it to them. And the references to David and his house are intentional to draw the attention of the readers to when David established the city. When David established that city, he said, God gave us this, and then God promised to keep it. This time, God will use Jerusalem to return strength and prosperity and his presence, but in a spiritual way, maybe not a way that they were looking for naturally. I think we see 
in this first section stunning parallels again to, the, to Jesus' ministry on the earth. He declared, God declared in this that on that day, we see that several times, I want to say it's like nine or ten times in this one chapter, on that day. And whenever we see that, there's God pointing to what will happen in the future. And I believe that this on that day looks to Jesus' first coming, because we also have on that day which refers to his second coming. I believe he's pointing to the day of Jesus' ministry on the earth. In verse 1, we see the declaration of God as creator, the one who stretched out the heavens, founded the earth, and formed the spirit of man within him. The first verse reminds us that God's all-powerful, and he's sovereign over all creation. He alone is the one who stretched out the heavens. He's the one that said, let there be light and establish the foundation of the earth. He's the one that formed man out of the dust of the ground. He is Lord over all creation, over sky, over land, over man. And as we see, as we see his doing, it's brought forth by his command. God points to his own created work in the beginning of this because I think he's drawing attention to a deeper work that will continue in the salvation of his people. He's declaring in this a new creation in Jerusalem. And again, he uses the pronoun I. It should catch, catch our eye. I will. I will strike. I will make. He's doing a work with the help and assistance. Or I'm sorry, he's not doing a work with the help and assistance of man. Nor is his work in danger of being thwarted by man. He's doing his work for his glory. He's doing his work that will exalt Jesus because Jesus participates in this work as the founder and sustainer of faith, the writer of Hebrews tells us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God is the creator. God is also declared as the judge, verses 2 through 4. We see how this is uh, uh, expressed with some different phrases that are used. God will reverse the role of Jerusalem. It will be the location of judgment, contention, injury, and chaos. We first see that with the reference of the cup of staggering, that he will make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to the surrounding peoples and nations. Now, the cup of staggering was an expression known for God's judgment on evil people. God's wrath is so severe and intense, just a taste of it staggers the mind and body, resulting in the impairment of the mind and body. This cup of staggering is what Jesus faced and spoke of in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew what was before him, and it made him stagger and stumble and bleed from his forehead. Then he drank the cup dry for us. God promised to use Jerusalem as the cup of staggering to the surrounding peoples. He would allow his judgment and wrath to be felt around Jerusalem. Now remember the effect of Jesus on the earth. If this cup of staggering, uh, if the, the references to Jerusalem and, and how Jerusalem would be used, I think is a reference to how God is sending his son to do this within Jerusalem. It would be the location of God's uh, effective ministry through his son. Remember when he, Jesus cleansed the temple? After turning the tables and driving out the money changers? What was the response of the people? Did they repent? No, they were angry with him. Now, he's coming in 
and expressing some wrath. You, you have made my house a den. It should be a house of prayer for all the nations to come and see who God is. And you've made it a den of robbers. In Mark 11, verse 18, the chief priests and the scribes heard it. And we're seeing this is after he had cleared them all out. And we're seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Jesus brought a, a judgment with him. And when they, when they got a taste of it, they were enraged. And then we see uh, that Jerusalem would be a heavy stone. He promised to make Jerusalem a heavy stone, which people would hurt themselves on trying to move. Now, whenever I see stone and rock in Scripture, I see Jesus. Jesus was that stone within Jerusalem, and everyone, every time people sought to move him, it cost them. Jesus told the story to the Pharisees, who we were always, he was always going after, saying, you guys, you're, you're blind guides, you're blind, and you're leading blind people. You don't have the way of salvation, because you don't see me. He told the parable of the talents, or, or I'm sorry, the, the parable of the vineyard, and all the vineyard is working for the owner, and they're, they're beginning to do things differently. And so the owner is sending people to redirect them, but they keep killing the, the people who are sent to redirect them. And the owner says, I'll send my son. They'll definitely listen to him. But they said, no, 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 let's kill him, because then the vineyard will be ours. And the Pharisees knew that he was talking about them. And then he, knowing the Pharisees knew he was talking about them, says this to them. He looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And Jesus is referring to the ways that we interact with him. We can come to him repenting of our sins uh, surrendering control over our lives, and, and we do, it results in a brokenness. It results, and that's, I think, the mourning that happens later on that's talked about in this chapter. When we come to Jesus and we really understand who he is, it breaks us down, but it breaks us down in a great, good way. When we interact with the Lord, we interact in a relationship that then is fruitful and life-giving. But in our pride, if we come to Jesus, he will judge us. I think that's the one. It's grace to fall on him. It's judgment for that rock to fall on anybody in their pride. And the promise is this. It will crush. Jesus is the stone from heaven, remember, that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his vision of the, the, the man and the different metals. Remember, there was a rock from heaven that came and hit the feet and it grew. That mountain grew bigger and covered the entire earth. Jesus crushes all earthly kingdoms, and most importantly, he crushes all the kingdoms of self that we really work at building in our lives, because his kingdom reigns. And then we have these, uh, the horse and rider with the panic and madness and blindness. I think this is a description of spiritual chaos, and we see this when Jesus comes to the earth too, uh, when he, during his, his earthly ministry before the cross. God promised to turn to strike the horse and the rider with barriers that would prevent their advance. A horse and rider, military, moving. He's, he's striking with panic and madness. Why? So they stop advancing. This could mean for leaders, 
or for everyone living on this earth breathing. It's an attack against self-righteousness. In our own self-righteousness, if we think we're getting toward the Lord, God causes a chaos. Because self-righteousness causes panic. It causes madness and blindness because of the attention it places on performance. Because here's the reality. When we are performing for God and for others, we are never satisfied that our performance is enough. And so it creates a panic. Oh, I haven't performed enough. Maybe I need to do something else. And it creates a blindness to what's around us and a, a madness in how we compare ourselves to other people. And they've done a little better than I have, so I need to do better. Spiritual chaos. Jesus' ministry turned the spiritual establishment, which was based in self-righteousness, on its head. He condemned self-righteousness. He pointed to himself as the solution to the performance gap we feel between us and God. We know he's there and he's good and he's perfect, and we know we're miserable and putrid. In our own strength, we say, ah, what can I do to try to get accepted by him? Because Jesus is the one that deals with this gap by coming on the cross. And Jesus pointed to himself in this way in Matthew 5. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, everybody looked at the Pharisees and said, how in the world could anybody be as holy as they are? <clears throat> Jesus says, I'm holier than they are because their holiness is self-derived. My holiness is part of my character. And he's pointing to himself. So we see God declared as the creator. God is the judge. In verses 5 through 9, we see God as savior. And he gives a spiritual strength to his people. As chaotic a scene and experience, spiritual chaos can be God watches over his people to give them strength. All those who live by faith are watched over by God himself, and it's with the tender phrase of keeping his eyes open on us. For in Zechariah 2, verse 8, he said, He who touches you touches the apple of his eye. He watches over those because we are the apple of his eye. There's a tenderness about his watching over. He's not watching over in order to condemn. He's watching over in order to strengthen. And the strength of God is often understood in our lives. Uh, this happens. We don't realize how strong God has been for us till after a crisis has passed. We don't recall that he's strengthening us in it. And I think that's helpful sometimes because we look back and say, wow, God was really strong. That's what he points to. The clans of Judah, they'll tell each other, we've been strong. The Lord of hosts has done it. All of the armies of heaven have been toward us. And then with his salvation as Savior that he gives, he gives again the, uh, the, the image of the blazing pot and, and flaming torch. God promises in this context, he's promising that his people would be harvest tools, sheaves to, to go out and collect and gather. He would use them as a blazing pot and flaming torch. Now these... These aren't harvest tools, and it's important to recognize why he's using these images to communicate to his people. 
they trigger, they should trigger our minds and everybody who knows the promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 15. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Remember, that was the animals that were cut in half and laid over against one another. These, when, with these two images, God declared that he would use a new covenant people, a new covenant with his people to gather as well as judge. They would, they would devour to the right and to the left. I think we see this fulfillment in Jesus when John the Baptist looks at him and declares him as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and looks at everybody else and says, you better repent because the axe is laid to the root. There's a judgment that's here. There's a gathering that the, 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 the good shepherd will do. But it also reveals that when the church is the church, God accomplishes, and, and we as his new covenant community, we accomplish his gathering as well as judgment. Follow me on this. When, when Christians live out when disciples of Jesus live out becoming more and more like him in everyday life, in our sanctification, we will shine with his light. And when we shine with his light, the surroundings that we have in this world are darkness. And when we bring God's light into darkness, people love the dark. They don't want their deeds exposed. So there's a, an attack. There's, they feel judged by that. You've felt that probably sometime in your life when somebody... Uh, just starts attacking you for something. Maybe the workplace, neighborhood, family, whatever. You think, what, what did I do? What's going on? I remember reading a story by R.C. Sproul. He went to play golf. Uh, there was a, a Billy Graham is playing. Uh, another, uh, uh, I think, a political official is playing. They're all playing. The political official just is having a miserable game. Candies, and then finally afterwards, they say, what's going on? Why you had such a bad game? I don't know, that Billy Graham guy. Like, did he say anything to you? No, he was just there. But we, listen, we can't be surprised when Christians are attacked by unbelievers and the unbelievers have no reason to attack. We have to be ready for that. We should not be self-defensive in that moment. We should recognize, ah, Maybe that's a good thing. I'm shining with Jesus' light. Because when we shine with Jesus' light, people feel that light. They don't want their deeds exposed, so they want to push the light away. That's why in our culture, and, and, and as you listen to news, uh, and I'm waiting for this day. I'm waiting for somebody to call here or show up here. Maybe they are transgender. Maybe they are homosexual. And they're going to, the first question, because I know it happens. The first question is, will you accept me if I come here? Well, they're, they're leading with a judgment question, and they, they're, they're afraid we're going to judge, but they're preempting the judgment by asking a judgment question. Well, based on my answer, you're judging me without knowing me, yet you want me to know you to find out who you are. It breaks down. They, it's, it's madness. It's spiritual chaos. We have to be prepared to interact with the world in a culture that lives in darkness and does not want their deeds exposed. We don't have to go on the attack. We just have to live righteously, live with the light of Christ and his love, 
it will find us. And I want, partly the reason we have a lantern as our logo is so we can be a light in the midst of darkness. Remember what Jesus said? Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Part of God advancing his kingdom. And God as Savior, he's the one that gives salvation. He promised salvation to the house of David. David was, was said to be a man after God's heart. He was submitted to God as Father. And salvation that God gives restores hearts to God. Pride and rebellion are to be repented of, and trust is to be placed in God. And this points to a relationship with God that's founded in faith that Abraham was the first to exhibit. And then we have the glorious promise of God protecting his new covenant community. God promised to protect his work in his people. He promises for this for anyone who is saved by faith. He will protect the deposit he's made in us by the presence of his spirit. And this promise also extends to the church. When the church faces onslaught both spiritually and physically, with terror and threats, even torment, God's promise to protect his church extends to striking enemies with panic, striking them with madness and blindness, so that invading armies will not advance against the church. God protects his church so that the gates of hell even will not prevail over God's covenant community, his church. Here's the promise by Jesus in Matthew 16. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, I think Jesus pointing to himself, this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. But don't miss, the gates of hell will try to attack, but they won't win. And then in the glorious component, the second part of this chapter, there is a grace upon grace that is revealed. First, in the first part, in all in, in verse 10, it's, verse 10 is power-packed. The first part, we have a grace and a mercy that is revealed. God pours out a spirit of grace. I think that verbiage is picked up again in Acts chapter 2 with the giving of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. And, and uh, that pouring aspect is picked up there. Now, grace is a crucial concept to capture for the Christian in salvation as well as in our daily lives. The difficulty is trying to define grace in a way that expresses the awe and wonder that we feel when we think about grace and we think about God's relationship with us. Now, uh, the definition we hear most often is that grace is unmerited favor. If you're like me, I don't use the word merit a lot, and I really don't use the word favor a lot. So in some way, that definition doesn't help me. So I have to kind of make it make sense for me, and it's this. Grace is getting what we don't deserve while not getting what we rightfully deserve. It's not just, I, I deserve death. Jesus took that. That's grace. I don't deserve his life. God gives me that by faith. That's grace. And it's wondrous. In regards to salvation, grace is God coming after us when we are lost in our sins, 
haters of good, proud in our self-orientation, capturing us with his love and completing us with his spirit. He comes after us, he captures us, he completes us. Where's our role in that? Responding to his grace. We are responders of it. We just say, thank you, and we trust him. And then when we have this grace, it turns into pleas for mercy. See, God's grace gives us the wherewithal to even ask him for mercy that he brings that we realize we need. His grace and mercy show up by getting us to look at the right thing for salvation and the right place for salvation. And we see that in the second part, uh, the middle part of verse 10. In whom, uh, on me, him whom they have pierced. In a glorious climax, God revealed two key elements to the, the salvation he will give. The first is he says, it's on me. God revealed he would be the one to be looked at for salvation, but uniquely, he would be killed and looked at for salvation. This is utterly astounding, and we can't let our our familiarity turn into a casualness when we think about this. God is announcing that he will die to bring salvation to his people. This was his fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 3, as well as Abraham in Genesis 15. This is the next link in the chain that began when he said in Genesis 3 to the serpent, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God declared that a wounded victor would conquer death and sin and rebellion. The links continued with God showing up in the middle of the covenant with Abraham. Isaiah includes the links when he's declared, he declared the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. This salvation is glorious because God does not require his subjects, us, to sacrifice to get to him. He promises that he will be that sacrifice to capture us. There is no uh, organized system of belief that has ever existed on this planet or will ever exist on this planet that has God as the one that sacrifices. Everything else says, you got to do better. And maybe you'll have salvation. Only God says, I've done it. Trust me. Grace to us. It's grace for everybody that calls on him for salvation. He promised to be the sacrifice, and God will be pierced. This is a concept in theological study that captures the act of Jesus dying on the cross for the sins of his people. And in in theology, it's called penal substitutionary atonement. If you want to really confuse somebody and act like you are all smart, bring out that. And people will say, what in the world are you talking about? When I try to describe it for us. In the last many years, this doctrine has come under scrutiny and attack uh, for those who can't imagine that God as Father would be killing his own son to bring salvation to a rebellious people. It's also attacked by those who can't imagine that the death of God's son would be in any way effective in, bringing, uh, in bearing the sins of others to satisfy God's wrath. Uh, what people who are opposed to penal substitutionary atonement will say is they they just want to describe Jesus as a good example and he was a victim of circumstance and that's why he died on the cross. He should not have died on the cross, but he was a victim of circumstance and hatred, so he 
died and should not have, but we need to trust his example and do our best. Of course, it goes back on performance, but Jesus' death was penal. It was a punishment. It was substitutionary. It was instead of us, and it was atoning. It gave forgiveness and the removal of sin so we could experience God's life with him. And God's the one that put him to death. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we, we are healed. In verse 10 of Isaiah 53, it says, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. God's the one that did it. But in this punishment, Jesus took wrath for others. He took God's wrath, the cup of staggering. He took the payment that had to be made for God to uphold his justice and his holiness. A payment needed to be made, but to satisfy his love, God substituted himself in our place. Jesus was able to pay for many in one sacrifice because of his, his divinity, his godness. And he was in our place. He was our substitute instead of us. The love of Jesus showed up uh, as, as taking our place on the cross that each one of us so rightfully deserved. And then he accomplished atonement. In the New Testament, you see a word in Romans and in 1 John called propitiation. And propitiation means satisfying the wrath of God. God looked at the death of his son with all of our sin. He put our sin upon him and crushed him with our sin and then stepped back and said, it's enough. And what that does is open up God, a relationship with us that he, again, he's coming to us. He's capturing us. He's completing us. He comes to us and says, I want you in a relationship with me because I've already taken your sin, the barrier between us. I've put it on my son. And you trust that he was in, in your place and you will be open to this relationship with me when the presence of God's spirit comes inside of us. The forgiveness of sin and the removal of the barrier of sin is what atonement means. It was the sacrifice that did away with all sacrifices. This was what Jesus did as he was pierced. And then it says on... On him, on me, him whom they have pierced. Who was the they? Everyone. They. Political leaders, spiritual leaders, common folk, Jew and Gentile. Everyone pierced the sun with their personal sin. It was one spear, but millions of hands were thrusting that spear into the Savior's side. John 19 we see since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath, that Sabbath was a high day, the Jew, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. And he saw, he who saw it, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, that was the 
That was a weird day for the disciples. But we get to still wonder in awe as we look on him who is pierced. Because Revelation describes him as a lamb that was slain. But in Revelation, he is standing, not on a cross. He is standing as though slain. I have no idea what that looks like. But I know it's Jesus. And we will see him. And now we get to live life looking toward him as the one who is the pierced one that we look to in order to be saved. And then the last part of verse 10 through verse 14 talks about mourning. There's a deep mourning, like mourning of an only child, a firstborn. This is deep grief. The wording is intentional so that we understand that this was God's only son, his firstborn. But the mourning would not be situational. That, you know, there's sometimes a a, a grief that we have because of the consequences that we're walking through. I just wish life was different. There's a different type of grief that we feel it and we walk every day. And we feel that grief because it's That's the grief that's being described. This would be a grief and a mourning that would leave people in a stunned silence. And we saw that in Luke. We see it in Luke 23, the day Jesus on the cross, all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. They're thinking that we just saw something heavy. We don't know what to do with this. And the mourning was the mourning of the loss of a future. The reference to on, in verse 11, on the day the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning of Hadad Rahman in the plain of Megiddo. He's referencing the death of Josiah, the king, a righteous, honorable, benevolent king, was killed by Pharaoh Necho of Egypt on the plain of Megiddo. And everybody mourned because they recognized, where's our future now? When we, when we come face to face with our sinfulness and the depth of our sin, we don't have a hope for future until we look at Jesus, the one who was pierced. And then we have all of this, the land shall mourn each family, and he's describing these things. There would be an ownership of personal contribution to the piercing of God. Look, there's no finger pointing like in the Garden of Eden. You sinned. Oh, it was the woman. Oh, it was the serpent. Everybody pointing a finger someplace else. He's saying when, when true salvation occurs, there's an owning. I have sinned. I've put Christ on the cross. I have pierced him with my sins. And the mourning that happens is the gate of the kingdom of heaven. Sorrow over sin brings us to the light of life that will save when we place our trust, our complete trust in Jesus, Matthew 5, 4, Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That's the first beatitude. It's the gate of the kingdom of God. So this means for us that in our lives, we want Jesus to be the crux of our lives. Now, is, does that really help in everyday life? Does it help at the workplace? Does it help in marriages? Does it help in parenting? Yes. Because when he is centered, we are centered. When we are submitted to him, we feel, we make way for his light and life to be in us, and we make it way for it to shine through us. And that's what affects our everyday. 
So no matter what darkness you're experiencing, no matter what discouragement you're experiencing, the answer is always, I need to see Jesus clearer. And when I see him, I will approach that awe and wonder at his grace and mercy toward me that now I can say, God, I don't know what tomorrow is going to hold, but I know you hold tomorrow. I trust you. The light that is Jesus Christ was pierced through. So his light would pierce through our hearts, awaking us to eternal life, awaking us to fellowship with God. Our greatest need is not try to figure out how to get out of a circumstance or change our circumstances. Our greatest need is to experience the light of Christ in our hearts. And that's when he is the crux of our lives. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious concept that your light, the light of your son, was pierced through. And Lord, we, we see that when... When the light of Christ, who was pierced, when we trust him, his light and life then pierces into our hearts, into our lives. God, I pray that we would grow in our wonder and amazement at your sacrifice for us. And Lord, I pray that we would grow in our amazement to where it begin to affect every single detail of our lives, and we would surrender every one of those to your glory. God, we love you.